Okay, welcome everyone to the Magic Yogi podcast. Uh, thank you everyone who's been listening to the 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 new version of the podcast. I took a break from it for a while, so anyone who's listening now, I really appreciate it. You know, it I, I almost feel better about doing it because the only people that are listening are the ones that are kind of you know stuck with it and. Um, anyways, I uh, just want to come on and spend a little bit of time just shooting around some ideas and see what comes out of my head if I ramble a bit. I thought maybe as a interesting little beginning to the podcast, I'd read what's on my typewriter right now. I have an old uh, Smith Corona Clipper, a typewriter. It's a 1970 model. I, I bought it from a place nearby that uh, restores old typewriters and gets them working new again. And I was lucky because this place is only a few hours away from me. There's not that many places in Canada or the U.S. that actually do that kind of work anymore. But so I found this thing. Right here, you can't. I don't know if you can see it good because of the way the light is, but uh, I, I leave it set up. I learned how to re ink the ribbon and get it, make sure it's working right. And so I just leave it set up and I kind of use it as uh, kind of just a free form thing just to throw my ideas out onto. I have a whole I have a whole stack of things that I've written on it. Most of it is kind of schizo babble. It's not you know it's just kind of stream of consciousness type things. But let's see what's on what I wrote here. This is all things from here and there. <clears throat> okay, it says always taking it too far. But is there ever any thought to where they chose to stop? Stepping up to the plate, some of us aren't just trying to connect. By hook or crook, every which way but up. Into the breach, a brass coffin, or hearse, it all comes out one way or another. The metal sweats and pushes everything through and out. I'm okay with not being human anymore. Do whatever I need to. Stay sane at all costs. Remember that all I have to do is survive. Make it to the end of the trail. That's all. The highest castle would have to be the one you build yourself. I can go as long as I need to. Please don't make it that long. I want to be able to lay down for a nap eventually. How many times do you need to be held over the edge before you'll stop kicking and screaming? On one hand, it's so simple. Elementary. At the same time, its refinement can be taken to such extremes that scales of microns and atoms come into play. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a line of gibberish here, but then next. See clear. 
trajectory and ballistics on point. Embrace your place. If there's a choice between predator and prey, would there even be one? Maybe someday there will be a different system, but for now this is what's here. Remember where it all has to end up. Uh, I can't really pretend to be able to interpret <laughs> that, it, like I said, stream of consciousness. That's just what I was putting down at the time. But I can, I can tell that there's, I can feel what I was thinking maybe when I wrote those things. Um, one of the things I kind of want to start off the podcast with talking about is uh, a word or a concept, danger. Our society is against danger, right? Our, um, here in the Western world, if you live in North America, danger is kind of a kind of one of the last taboos. It almost feels like our our society and our systems are are trying to um they're trying to make allowances for things that normally would have been thought of as unhealthy or harmful and trying to reframe them in a sense of freedom and free will, but yet still keeping some activities and some thoughts, some ways of being, keeping them as dangerous, using that moniker as a way to label things that are not allowed. Oh. I mean, depending on where you live, you could have a young child and take them to doctors to get uh, hormone treatment therapies and gender reassignment and supposedly that's all well and good. But yet at the same time, there's certain certain ideas, certain ways of thinking that are still dangerous and taboo. Which makes me think that people in charge of setting such things aren't. Safety isn't their concern. That's just uh, words used to mold the conversation and coerce pe people. The reason I want to use that word to kind of start the podcast was because um, for myself, in my own life growing up, I'm 33 now, especially in my 20s, I, I definitely lived a dangerous life a lot of times. You know, being a drug addict being an alcoholic, being just an all-around lunatic and crazy person. Um, 
I feel like I became really familiar with danger. And I feel like because of my experiences growing up and my perspective, I never, per, my own personal safety was never much of a concern. I know that might sound like some kind of braggadocious type speech, but my primary concern when I was younger, above all else, was freedom. I would sacrifice everything. I would give up everything that would normally be thought of as valuable in exchange for freedom. If I ever felt like I was in a situation that was taking away my freedom, I would I would scrape tooth and nail to get it back. I would I've um I've done a lot of things that people would think are nonsensical solely because of the reason that I I value independence above all else. And you know, I used to think that freedom was a universal human instinct. I used to think that it was a fundamental part of the human existence to crave freedom and to value independence, but I don't know. I don't I don't know if that's an objective reality. I I don't know if that's something I don't know if that's something that's um that's part of the makeup of everyone. Through all my experiences with talking to people and interacting with people in different capacities and ways of life, I feel like I've met a lot of people that didn't value freedom or that things like safety or um, being able to understand their place in the world is more important than freedom or comfort is more important or being able to have definite boundaries to reality is a little more important than freedom to some people. And I was, I was discussing this with someone earlier today about... I think I was talking about history with someone and I told them, you know, even though I'm not American, I'm Canadian, I've always admired the foundation that America and the U.S. was built on. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of talking about idealistic things. I'm not necessarily talking about the realities, but as far as my understanding of it, the United States of America was kind of founded on a a philosophical foundation that humans, fully realized, mature, independent humans, are always equal to each other. That one man, fully independent, taking care of himself, is equal to another man, and that there's no... There's nothing you can do in this world to be above another human being. You know, that there can be roles that we play in society. There can be positions that we fill, responsibilities that are laid on us, but fundamentally, a human is a human. 
there's no such there's no such thing as a divine person or there's no one that has any ultimate power over another another person and i don't think a lot of people realize how many countries how many lifestyles aren't based on that that there's no assumption of equality there's no assumption of independence or of the value of a human life. And you know, in when you're a when you're in a country like Canada or let's say the UK, Australia, China, Japan, the individual doesn't matter. You know, your own your own beliefs, your own will are always going to be subservient to the state, to royalty, to your betters. And in a way, it kind of scares me that there's people that are okay with that. It disturbs me that there's people that are working with the mental software that tells them that there are people who have some kind of a right to tell you how to live or to tell you what you need to do with your time on this planet. Yeah. Hey, dude, bro. Yeah, I got another uh, drop-in for audience of the podcast anyone can jump in at any time i'm just kind of rambling about different things um <clears throat> you know i one of the things i always bring up to people that i've probably ranted about i don't know how many times is you know when i was younger i used to always get fed this mythology of rebellious natives you know, that the Native American Indian was a rebellious being, something that couldn't be tamed, that was always in opposition to government and monarchy and such. And I've, I've found a lot in the modern day, especially in the region that I'm in, in Alberta, Canada, that there's there's so much of a trend towards trying to trying to work with governments and trying to cooperate with them and um, trying to legitimize yourself in the eyes of authority like the Canadian government and, you know, international organizations and such. And I feel like that old, that old uh, ideal of the rebellious native whose spirit can never be broken, a free human who knows how to live outside of the bounds of society and religion and commerce is kind of gone. I mean, there are still people that live like that, but they're getting less and less. Yeah, I think that's why I, I've talked to some people about it. But, you know, my 
retirement plan that I'm working towards is to become a trapper and to carve out a niche where I can live as much as I can off the land and to have, um, you know, work that's sustainable, that <clears throat> has to do with being a steward of land that I'm on. And the reason why I'm dedicated to that is because I, I'm trying to carve out a way of life for myself that's independent, that's future-proof, where I can, I can, if I want, I can, I want to be able to disregard what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, I want to be able, I, I don't value anything in media. I don't, I don't give a shit about art. I don't care about I really don't care about much. I care about being able to do what I please, move about freely, and to be able to just kind of uh, experience the time that I have on this earth without having to live in other people's delusions. Dude, bro, are you there? Are you... uh are you just uh, listening in? <laughs> Anyways. Uh, oh, we are right at a break time. So uh, I'm going to take a quick few minute, uh, two, going to take a quick two minute break and I'll be right back. Just going to have a cigarette. I'm going to be, um, um, ed I edit the break times out. One of the things that kind of jogged in my head was, uh, like, see, like, through my whole life, I've kind of, I've had a lot of experience with, you know, the world of people that are into sobriety, you know, for whatever reason, because of <clears throat> their own personal struggles or some kind of... Uh, some kind of philosophical uh, leaning that somehow uh, keeping your body in some kind of a, a stasis and keeping it away from outside influences is somehow better or more positive. But, <clears throat> but I, you know, one of the things I think about with that is that, you know, human, whatever a human is, is a part of its environment. We're, we're a part of everything that is in our realm. And every, just about every single culture has some kind of intoxicating sub substance or something that changes brain chemistry or influences consciousness in some way. And without that, without that influence, I mean... I don't think humanity would be what it is. You could take that you could take that on anything, alcohol, you know, weed, psychedelics. You can't separate human thought from those things as much as people maybe would like to. Yeah. I mean like boxing probably wouldn't exist if nobody had well, like 
your inhibitions lower and said something stupid, and got into a fight. And then people were people on looking were like, hey, you know what? This is pretty darn entertaining. Uh, like sports um, and art sports yeah. and art I mean those I, I mean okay it would be a little crazy to say if they would even exist at all but would they even exist without, without any kind of uh, conscious altering consciousness altering either substances or practices I mean long distance running or weightlifting or martial arts are definitely consciousness expanding or consciousness influencing activities that change, you know, the way your mind processes the world. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the dopamine hit with, with beer, uh, at least in my experience, and, and most alcohol, I think. Although I choose to drink beer now, because uh, it's easier on me mm. the next day. But, uh, you know, I think the dopamine gets you kind of uh, inquisitive and into the learning mode, and then the, like, the maybe protective mechanisms in the brain that keep you from saying the wrong thing are lowered, and like you can get into really heated conversations. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking yesterday about like what's the nature of Kundalini. I'm thinking like it was actually just like a linguistic representation of 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 the the modes of consciousness that people experience. Like it was a sort of like a, a way of philosophizing about how okay so like so kundalini is like a little serpent sitting in your belly and like when you get it when you get a when, when you when you go dopamine seeking and you start doing like risk-taking behavior and stuff like that it it's it's like a representation of like you're a snake coming out of your out of your belly and like uh like, so, like, the, the dopaminergic system, the serotonergic system, norepinephrine, GABA, all of these systems, like, there, there's, like, a, 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 there was a way for the, the people who came before us for reasoning about how your body in terms of these systems, and that was what the, the origin of Kundalini was. It's a serpent, and the idea is, like, managing sin and thinking about sin and there's there was like a serpent in the tree in the garden of eden who like said like don't eat this apple and there's the snake symbology and i think it was like because like a thousand years ago nobody was able to hate that nobody was able to like we weren't able to look inside the brain or run these tests to like see what kind of the chemicals were moving to what parts of the brain at what time mm. so like uh I don't know, I suppose an easy one to philosophize about is like like sex, you get like a, a dopamine release. And that would be that would be the serpent, like uh 
like rising up a little bit, I guess. I'm not really sure. Maybe the serpent moves around depending on like different uh, modes of consciousness with relation to like the neurotransmitters that are being released. Mm. I, I don't, I don't know. It, I think that's what's going on. I don't know enough about like Kundalini in general, but there's a book called uh, the rising serpent by some guy named Kissinger that I saw someone post about on 4chan. I, I'm thinking about reading that. Anyway, there was there was a, a chapter in there that said, uh, like the the thing is, is if you want to have your kundalini rise all the way, like you have to abstain from most uh, like drugs, and I think you have to like meditate on that or something. I'll post I'll post the well the thing. Yeah, in um, um... so like serotonin's associated with like feeling calm and like happy, I guess. Dopamine's more associated with like learning, uh, sex, and other stuff like that. I'm guessing neuropathy more to do with like feeling energized. Yeah, you know, um, uh, like I gotta uh, read this book, I guess. Yeah, like uh, something I was gonna. I can't hear you. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Let me know anything this way. Let me just try. Yeah, I think that's probably. Uh... I did. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, one other thing I was gonna throw in there was uh, like I've I've been I've been a yoga teacher for a pretty long time and I've taught people um, you know like uh, energy work techniques like to deal with uh, kundalini and that is it's always an interesting thing where you know I've had discussions with people where they say you know like what exactly is kundalini like what is it you know like if if you could uh uh, drag it into you know physics knowledge or modern things like what exactly are they describing when they talk about it and the um the explanation that i've i've known from like the old yogic teachings is essentially kundalini is a name or a, a identifier for a kind of energy that's uh, more subtle than kind of electric nerve energy that you know most people are familiar with and you know physics is kind of familiar with and that kundalini is a step below that in terms of i guess you could say um how like how how am i trying to conceptualize this like uh i guess you could say like um physical action willed actions in the physical world would be like water and then emotional mental energy uh nerve electrical energy would be like water vapor and then kundalini would be something finer than that more subtle than that but is still a fundamental part of that energetic process it's kind of the it's the root like um the terminology that I've heard used is that it's Oh, Hey, Deckat. Mal. So yeah, maybe it would be the boiling point where it's changing from water to steam. And I think from steam to whatever is that next step, I think would probably be what, what Kundalini is because like the way that I've heard it uh, conceptualized in words is, that you know, there's um, that it's uh, they refer to it as a causal energy, 
that's a word I remember being used for it. Causal as in like first cause, like original movement, like the first, like the big bang, you know, the first spark of creation, the, the push that moves things into fruition is that's what Kundalini does. It's kind of like the most fundamental uh, source of energy and the, the one of the reasons why they would uh, talk about it as uh, it being a, a coiled form of energy at the base of the spine is that they conceptualize it as uh, energy from heaven or from some kind of divine place coming down like kind of a tree an upside down tree with its roots in the unseen the roots coming down and the tree being the human with its roots in that subtle kundalini space and it uh, growing out and blossoming into reality. Yeah. Huh. I think, what if, what if in this instance the tree is at, like maybe a representation for like the brain? Right, right. Because it's kind of shaped as man. In terms of like blood vessels and like the uh, spinal cord. No, that's really, uh, I never know what to think about that. You know, you always see, um, you always see memes and infographics showing, you know, this, uh, you've seen the one where it's like, oh, uh, human neurons in the brain. Are look exactly like super clusters of galaxies in the universe. And, you know, the whole as above, so below, you know, this, uh, the duplication of structure on the micro and the macro level. It, it like, it, it makes sense logically when you see those kind of things to, to infer that there's some kind of a fundamental universal pattern that gets repeated throughout everything. But like, I don't know, it's, it's hard to bring that into experience and, you know, figure out what that actually means for a human. Huh, yeah. I was talking with Valky yesterday or the day before. We were talking about like, you know how there's, like, all these reptilian races on, or, like, different races on Earth of, like, aliens or whatever? I think it's actually, like, maybe it's code for... Like, because if you imagine the Big Bang, we all came from the same point, so, like, any matter that we see when we look out of the telescope should be, like, intrinsically connected with, I guess, all the matter everywhere else, including here on Earth. So, like, I'm wondering, like, maybe, like, so, like, the Draco reptilians are from, like, a certain feature of the sky, and then there's, like, the, Sir the Syrians, who are, like, cat people, who are from, like, another region of the sky, and, like, all, maybe it's, like, it's actually talking about, like, the regions of the sky where their matter is co-associated with most strongly, if all matter came from a single point. Um, I'm just, I'm thinking, like, back to, like, the gateway experience documentation, where it's, like, 
there's a galaxy and that represents your brain hmm. and like the center of the galaxy is like the black hole which might be I don't know maybe your pineal gland or whatever well you know uh um, not, not to not to cut you off but I want to throw uh, something in here that I don't think I talked about on the podcast yet was um in in the writings of the guy that I kind of base my teachings off of uh, is this old yogi from the late 1800s uh, named Lahiri Mahasaya. And in his uh, journals and his writings of his experiences with his yogic practice, uh, he talks about, uh, you know, when you get into what they call the static still state, kind of the, the end result of a lot of uh, yogic and kundalini practices that the, he, he claimed, which is backed up by a lot of other uh, yogic types, that the visualization of the source of creation, which is supposedly possible when you get to a point where you're able to control the creative vibrations that are going on within you and be able to see past those and that if you're able to get this experience of source that the visualization of it is like what we would talk about now as a black hole they actually describe it as a um like a image of something that's like a negative light, you know, like it's, it's not light, but it's, it's something that you can tell exists in a different, like, it's like, you know, they say, Oh, you, you're looking at it, but all you can see is um, the boundaries of it. And that within that boundary of this black hole that you can visualize is kind of a center point. That is the self actually. It's actually like what the self is, is the originator of creation. You know, it's, it's kind of like what, what they call one of the secrets of yogic practice is that they don't like being public about the idea that the end point is to realize, you know, the self in all things or to realize that what the self is, is the center of creation. Yeah, well, because if you, I think if you, because it leads you to reasoning or meditating about having a sounder philosophy, and the better your philosophy is, the more likely, uh, sorry, the more unlikely someone's going to be able to sell you something without being able to successfully pull the wool over your eyes mm -hmm. with like marketing slogans or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> that particular yogi that I kind of base my things off of, one of the things I really appreciated about his message was the idea that, you know, when you get deep into yogic practices, you're living within and working in the unseen world. You're, you're becoming intimate with the unknown and the things that are beyond uh, mundane life and beyond the physical world, but that just because you're having those experiences doesn't mean that you just let go of the physical world, you know, 
you don't become, you know, like the story of Buddha being an ascetic in the woods and not eating and just thinking, oh, I'm just going to transcend and leave this plane. You know, he had the idea that there was old teachings that said, if you go on this path, you need to maintain your worldly existence. You have to play your role in creation. Even though you might be experiencing things beyond, you know, the beyond the pale, beyond experience, you still are in a position in this world that's important and that you have some kind of a responsibility to play your part. And so he would like, this is something that I never saw in too much other things in yoga, old yogic things where he would actually advise his students, like, you know, don't, um, don't become a monk, you know, don't become a beggar, you know, live your life the way it, that it's natural to you. If you're a craftsman, keep being a craftsman. If you're a businessman, keep being a businessman. But at the same time, you can do practices and you can dedicate yourself to this work while still living in the world at the same time. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important that like once you have your visionary experiences or coming to God moments, variously however you like interpret something like that is supposed to happen or what it would be like or what your conception of God is. Uh, like, now you're able to see all the patterns and everything. Like, I mean, or maybe at that point you're not able, yeah, you still got a lot of meditating to do. But you gotta, you, now that you, you gotta, you gotta take what you've learned and you gotta, you gotta tell people about it. Otherwise, they're not gonna know what's going on there they're, because they're, you you had an entry point philosophically to go to go on your vision quest and start meditating in the first place but there are still other people out there who were like trapped up in this this maze and they don't know how to reason about it because the information is very controlled um and so you got to go out and talk to people i guess yeah, one uh, one really interesting story I remember from those uh, those writings of this guy. I, he I think he died in about the eighteen nineties, and um, during his life there was this one story I liked where uh, there was a there's a famous yogi. I'm pretty sure his name is uh, Trilanga Swami. He was this really well known uh, yogi that had. Um, had like was known to have the abilities of like old medicine men and mystics like you know things like uh biolocation being able to be in two places at once or you know being able to do physically anomalous things and one day while he was on his travels he made a point to go visit this yogi that I was I learned my stuff of this uh, Lahiri guy and the story is that when when this uh, mystic yogi went to go meet this guy, who was known as the householder yogi, because he was you know famous for being a mystic, but still maintaining a domestic existence, you know, like he had a, he like most of his life he had a government job, and he didn't start teaching until he was already kind of in later life, and 
this 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 mystic yogi who was known for having supernatural powers and such when he met the householder yogi he bowed to him and kind of did a um whatever you call it like showing him respect and the people who were there were asking were kind of questioning him like why would you why are you bowing to this householder you know like obviously shouldn't you be something beyond, you know, a guy who just lives here in, you know, the family and domestic life. And what that mystic yogi said was, he said, I'm paying reverence to this guy because, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I'm paying reverence to him because he was able to achieve uh, something well-being in the domestic life with all the trappings and distractions and, you know, all the the troubles of being a domestic person, he achieved the same thing that people like me gave up everything to achieve. He and he, what he said, his uh, famous quote was, he, he achieved what we would give up even our loincloths to achieve. And he did that well being in the family unit and being like a member of society. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's it's an example. I'd I'd like to be like that, I think. Um which is uh there's like there's so much money involved. So much ridiculous like money all over the place. Oh, now that uh, you... I, I don't even... I, I'm sorry. Let me just finish very quickly. Like, I'm not, yeah. like... I'm not, like... Like, I'm just... I, I'm just... I'm, I'm listening. It's just a barrage of news. And it, it's just... It's very concerning. But, uh... Anyway, what were we going to say? Uh, just when you uh, brought up money, uh, one of the other um, big teachings that that householder yogi had was that he would tell his students that he was setting up to be teachers themselves, that he would tell them, you know, that you should always, uh, make your own living in the world, that you should always be responsible for your own survival. He was actually really against, uh, people becoming, um, like monks or ascetics or living off of charity and things like that. Like he would really advise people that he taught, like no matter what kind of things you're getting into, like live naturally, you know, like take care of yourself, uh, you know, work, <laughs> you know, like uh, provide for yourself and do this. Don't like use spirituality as an excuse for checking out of the world. And to me, when I heard that, I, I, I thought that was such a, modern thing like I I felt like I I don't like I've been in the in the world of mystics and spiritual people since I was really young and I've heard all different kinds of ideas about practices and teachings I rarely have I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk that way about like that don't you know spirituality and your worldly life are really two separate things you know that you have your life and your work, your family, and things you do in the spiritual world shouldn't, you know, like this whole idea of that you have some spiritual awakening and then you 
run off and leave your family and go off and just sit under a tree and hope that people drop bread in your basket. Like, I don't know where that idea got root, but uh, some of the the highest levels of thinking in that world, I don't think they would uh, approve of that all the time. You know, it's like a cop-out. Well, you know, I, I think the Matrix kind of probably started in <clears throat> India, the whole idea of money magic, you know, like the invention of zero and all, all this stuff. Uh, Arabic math, India came from Indian math, and it's like... Like, on the one side, you have India, and then on the other side, you have China, and it's like, now these two systems are interacting. I mean, it's, I'm kind of getting lost in a, tan a tangent or, or something, I'm not sure, but, uh, but how to operate inside of the, uh, how to do money magic is you, you have to learn, you have to learn how to play the game and balance it with uh, just the idea of there being a higher power. I guess you could call the game Satan. Would, uh, would you, like, uh, I'll ask you this question directly. Do you think it's possible, is, do you think there's been systems outside of that? I mean, do you think, like, in history, has there been societies that are completely without commerce and trade i mean is, is that even yeah, possible we're, we're talking about we're we're we're, we're, we're okay well I'm, I'm not sure what the, the laws were like back in like sumeria or whatever when they were first getting like uh an economy going but i mean they had they had a sexagesimal system uh or it was base six and so i mean like i'm not sure what like, I mean, you could probably ask someone on the street, like, do you know what infinity is? And they'd say no. So they really have no concept for really harsh or inflated sums of money uh, or what, what a, an economy really was. That was a later invention. Um, uh, you're, uh, my, my audio disconnected at the first part of the, the question. Oh, with um, with my question, <laughs> did uh, you didn't you didn't hear the yeah. first part? Um, I think it was um, like, do you think I? I think what all I said was, uh, do you think there's been uh, systems that have existed that aren't that? Like when we we're talking about kind of the Satan system of uh, a transactional. Oh, well, no, I, I think. It, well, I mean, I mean, I'm not. I'm not okay, so. My idea is, like, Satan's a kind of, like, a machine. Um, it's, uh, like a linguistic, noospheric kind of, uh, machine. Like, the adversary, that was, like, the old idea there. Yeah, uh, it's sort of like God's alter ego. Mm. Um... But uh, alternate systems, I mean, okay, so people are, like, taking rocks and, like, scraping, like, faces onto them. Uh, there was, uh, people are trading shiny stones. Um, but you only have so many stones. I mean, we do everything 
like okay, like with maybe the invention of like books, paper, and like ledgers and things like that, you could say that you know certain large amounts of money would could belong to people, and you just write it down on paper and say like, okay, well now you've got like credit here. Uh, like there's a certain amount of money which you command, and you just have to go into this office, and this is, has to do with this. I think the invention of banks. Like, what did banks come around? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Now I don't know. Yeah, now now that you say that, I really have no idea what the origin of banks is. I no clue. Because I mean, like you would think with someone like me who's all into conspiracies and history, you would think I would have had an answer for that. I actually have no clue now that I think about it. The origin of banks. (laughs) They probably don't want us looking, bro. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, hell, out of all the things I've looked into, why do I not have an answer for (laughs) how did banks start? Mm. That's such a a fundamental, (laughs) fundamental thing, yeah. Like, hmm, like, if you look right here, you can see it's consistently these people... No, no, I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> the owners of every <laughs> bank through history. <laughs> Where did this become a thing? Uh, where did this become a thing? Yes, exactly. I mean, this fits into another topic. It's like, okay, so you're like, you're like the first bank owners. You're getting ridiculously rich because this is like a new invention. It's like a bank. Oh my god! It's a place where you keep like money or like you like write like a like a certain number of digits after a person's name, and then they come in and you say, "Yeah, it's you. You can have this much. I don't know, gold or whatever." Like, so the people running these banks for generations, like generations after generations. I guess it would have been like a family kind of a business kind of a thing. I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure, but like. So the people running these things, they're really good at being counters, probably because like after generation after generation, you probably, they, their descendants, I, I imagine, will become less and less imaginative because they have to like sit and count beans all day. And so like the less imaginative you are and the more eager you are to count beans, uh, you, know, you get priority like running the bank kind of thing. And so like maybe after like 50 generations, like what does this do to the group of people? running this kind of money scheme kind of a thing like what is it like so when when they finish working at the bank like they're living in the lap of luxury uh they there's really no what happens to natural selection what happens to what happens to natural selection in that scenario like i mean because i can imagine like compounding like if you're if you're selecting for the, the best bean counter in your family. And you're like, this one's going to marry this other person who's related to the next best bean counter in the next banking family over. I mean, what happens? Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just I, like, it reminds me of that scene from Gringotts and Harry Potter. Mm. I know it gets, it gets very, we're talking about like negative evolution and things like this. And, and this is like forbidden science. So, yeah, anyway, cause, cause just it, something to talk about. I mean, think about because it it re like uh like what you were saying like what would be the effect if you had uh, generations of people working in that industry, 
and to me, it, it makes me think it would make, uh, it would reinforce a worldview that puts banking and uh, transactional currency science at the forefront, puts it at the top. If you're, if you have, if you're in a family that your business is uh, working with money, as in like your family started one of the first banks or something like that, generationally, you're going to reinforce that worldview and you're going to reinforce this mental structure. And, you know, we live in a world now where banks are some of the most powerful entities and, you know, like, uh, like could, like you can't start a bank. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to just, if you had some money and you want to start your own bank, I would bet good money you can't do it. You know, it's it's not something you can just jump into. And so I feel like there's we've been in a period of history that's dominated by that system through generational reinforcement of this mental structure. But that doesn't mean that there doesn't exist alternate systems. It just means that we're living in a time that's dominated by this particular one. Well, I mean, an alternate system would be you create something that you thought up creatively while you're meditating, but I mean, like maybe like art or something like that, and that would be a time as art economy. But like the the bankings, the people running the banks, all they have time to do is is buy up arts, and then they and then they trade it, and it's like, but they never actually create art. Mm. I I think there like an alternate system could be one where each individual person that exists is producing something and that there isn't there's no kind of um there's no storehouse of energy that energy is kind of expended and then cashed in immediately <laughs> like this like i'm kind of going back to like super primitive thinking but i mean if you had a group of people like say five people where each of them only had one certain particular skill or attribute that was useful for survival like let's say you have like one person who's a hunter one person knows plants and fruits vegetables or how to care for livestock and so on and so forth. Maybe someone who's good at construction engineering, uh, people's attributes and skills would be instead of instead of being uh, oh one second instead of being translated into units of value, they would just be directly uh, translated into physical reality, as in food shelter, security, uh, creative endeavors. Well, this is where Big Agro comes in. And, uh, I don't know, it's like, if we can return to the land, and have, like, everybody's, everybody's trained about how to be a farmer, and, uh, not everybody goes into it, 
other people become like blacksmiths and things like this. But now everything's mass produced. It just seems to be like snowballing into like, uh, and now with the advent of robots, they don't need people to do it anymore. And so now we're just going to have robots doing all this shit. Everybody's going to move to the cities because it's easier to think there. The, the, the major attractive cities are all in, all in like, blue states. Huh. I don't know. It's, it's like... There's this, this reinforcing, like, logic that happens amongst the people there where it's like, no, we're not gonna... We're not gonna attempt to think outside the box, like... All of these transactions, they operate on the idea that, you know, we're the highest power. So after after a while, you maybe you think that sort of you become nobles in in a, in a sense, but it's not it's not related to like people who actually it's not related to like the nature of empires led by philosopher kings. It's led by like financial titans. Well, you know, uh, I'm. I really. I don't know. I really like what we. Uh, oh, hey, nobody. Good seeing you. Hey, we're just. Uh, we're just kind of wrapping up the the podcast. Uh, I was gonna. What I was gonna tell, uh, dude, bro, here was that. Uh, you know, we we're talking about. Um, We've been talking about like systems of civilization, like banking, you know, like how banking has such a control over society and things. And one of the, the last, uh, yeah. one of the last bits that I was going to put out there and you can throw your thoughts in on this, nobody, because I'll give like a little bit of time if you want. But what I was going to say was like in some real old yogic books that i read where there's like these uh old legends and stories something really interesting uh -huh. i read was this idea of like uh, this mystic telling a student you know uh the world that you see and the reality that you're experiencing don't take it for granted uh, or like uh you take it for granted that uh different worlds might be similar to this one but there's possible worlds that are kind of beyond your perception and understanding in terms of like one of the ways examples was he said, you know, there's worlds that exist and could exist where like light and dark are switch places where up and down yeah. are switch places where phys no, I, I know. physics don't work the same way. The fundamental rules of this reality aren't fixed. And so that's kind of I that's kind of I what I was gonna Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so one of the last things that I wanted to uh throw in there before we shut it down, we're at about an hour and ten minutes, was um oh where where did my thing go here? Um like what do you do you guys really do you guys foresee in the future complete upheaval or do you no. think that we're just going to be we're just going to be consistently going into a refinement of well, what do you life? mean by upheaval 
Like, you know, like for, for the past at least 10 or 15 years, I've const consistently been hearing Armageddon, doom and gloom, apocalypse coming, but there's a completely separate line yeah, of that's thought. Like, that... uh, it's like, like what you were talking about earlier, well, just a few seconds ago with uh, how there's worlds that are different. So it's just like using duality. To bring about the opposite. So yeah, I guess you could say an upheaval in a good way. And uh, I wouldn't say refinement. More of like an expanse. Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think I think what, what might be happening is uh, there's... Knowledge seems to have been like embargoed, and uh, it seems like the systems that were set up to control us are now having a kind of a like a, a deleterious effect on their own existence. And I imagine at some point in the future, the people who set those things up. Uh, are going to experience, well, they're going to experience like the law of diminishing returns or whatever. Uh, and also, you know, like I think there's, 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 there's a lot that's been, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm leaving it open for now. So. You know, I, I like to, um, I give a lot of credence to my own gut feelings and my instincts. And I don't, I haven't had an instinct of cataclysm. I really no, haven't, no. you know, I haven't had an instinct or a hunch. Possibilities of, are very finite. Yeah. I really, if someone was to honestly ask my opinion, I would say this world is going to go on forever forever this is gonna keep yeah. going it's not this whatever this existence is individuals might check it's out stars and, and go somewhere else like you know you might okay say today like before i'm going to sleep tonight a bomb could hit my house and then i'm going i'm on to something else but this reality is gonna keep going i just is this gonna lake, keep lake got one in his fucking mailbox so yeah he pissed me off oh, that was the last time did you read the divinations or were you guys talking? No, I, I didn't look at anything for the past hour. I've just been on this. I turned it to Cthulhu and latched onto his head and just sucked everything dry out of him and then fucking supplanted him with the female energy, with the wife. And uh, then I found his star, which was like a fucking massive star with a bunch of little stars that he had collected around it, and then I fucking just drained that bank account. Nice. It was funny, you were talking about banking right at the end, as I was draining the bank account in a currency exchange. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap up the podcast here. Uh, do you guys have any last thoughts you want to put on while we get ready to no, head No, but thank you for having the podcast tonight. It was a good night. Cool. I'll be releasing it by the near tomorrow. future is what I give you now. Nice. Have a good night. Nice. Sleep well.
All right. Thanks, everyone. I'm going to shut off. Stop recording right about here.